0: My talk is really this this morning about um, evangelism in the New Testament. Okay, now typically when I do this talk, I run a video off YouTube uh, of some skeptic in which he's he's basically giving advice to Christians in evangelism, and um, uh, we don't have the gadgetry yet to do that. But the the point of the of the video is to sort of have a skeptic tell you what it is that um, Christians get wrong when they do evangelism. Okay, now whilst I don't agree with everything that this guy said, and um, uh, he does say a few interesting things in this video, and so if you're really interested in doing this, and you really want to see this video, I can I can give you a link to it, and when we get on the Wi-Fi, I can show you where it is. It's just interesting, it's about an eight or nine minute talk of this guy, who's just basically dressing down Christians when they do evangelism, and saying, you know, you you bully us with the, the threats of hell, and this kind of thing, and, and uh, that's not persuasive, and you, you sort of you come at us with this patronizing attitude, and that's not persuasive either. And then he goes on to say, and here's the problem. He said, you, you, you guys um, come over here, and you, you don't know what you're talking about. You, know, you, don't, you don't even read your own Bible. You, who of you has taken a class in church history? You don't even know what church history is. You, know, you don't even study the arguments for apologetics. He says that. This is what the skeptic is saying. He said to him, you know, he says, but this is what I'm longing for. He says, I wish that I could find a Christian who I could have a meaningful conversation with. Um, and then he mentions, he says, Oh actually, I have this one guy, he lives in Ireland, this guy, and he says, who does? And he says, I really appreciate my conversations with him. And so it's, it's interesting because it's, it's like coming straight from the horse's mouth because this is the kind of culture in which we now live. We live in this melting pot of ideas and we live in this overarching age of skepticism and it seems like Christianity is the is the whooping boy of our age. It's like you can you can say um, uh, whatever you want about Christianity, um, it doesn't really matter you can you can make fun of Christians, you can mock them, you can ridicule them now it's off limits when it comes to everything else. you know the Eastern religions, Buddhism is just glorious, and Hinduism is wonderful, uh, and as you've noticed people just don't want to say anything about Islam, you know. So we avoid that at all costs, you know. Uh, lest you go and have an art competition and some guys get shot and so people just act out of fear and the Muslims have won that. They now have officially intimidated the culture such that people are fearful to critique Islam. But hey, you know, you can make a cross of Jesus and urinate on it and put it in an art gallery and everybody applauds you and goes, oh, that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, this is the kind of culture we live in. But hey, as Christians, we shouldn't be put out by that because Jesus says what? He says, the reason why they hate you is because they hate me first. And because we know that ultimately, people don't like to be confronted with what is true. Especially if that truth opens them up morally. That's what they don't like. And that's what Jesus does better than anybody else. Because he's not just interested in what's true. That is what corresponds with reality. He's going to press you even further. He wants to know what corresponds with your moral reality. And, uh, so, and that's what people, I think, ultimately is behind these things. So, for the sake of this morning, we didn't have a chance to look at this video. But I run this video sort of so that you can hear it and you get the idea here. Yeah, I know many of you have been at this event in the past. So this is the culture in which we live. And so how do we do evangelism in this culture? How do we do an evangelism in a culture where you've got so many competing beliefs and so much confusion and even confusion within the churches? How do we do that? Now, when it comes to evangelism, okay, there's typically two things that you'll get. You'll either get books on evangelism that are written on evangelism or you'll get methodologies or forms of evangelism. And so there's numerous books that have been written on evangelism over the years. And... uh, As with most things, some of these books are useful and some of them I wouldn't think are particularly helpful. And so um, there's also models of evangelism. Uh, Think of like the four spiritual laws that were employed with great effect by Bill Bright or think of Ray Comfort and uh, Kirk Cameron's The Way of the Master where they use the old law as a sort of a paradigm through which to then ask specific questions. Uh, In the UK, the most successful model of evangelism that I'm certainly aware of is called the Alpha Course, which was started at uh, HDB Holy Trinity Brompton in London by a guy by the name of Nicky Gumbel. And and the European churches use this as an outreach. And in my estimation, perhaps the most successful evangelistic model that they use over there. I'm surprised more churches don't use it here in the US because it's been very successful at reaching out to skeptics. Um, I've, seen, I've seen the adverts a few places, but I'm surprised more churches in the U.S. haven't uh, used it because I think it's quite effective. So these are, are models of evangelism. Um, D. James Kennedy wrote a book called Evangelism Explosion, and, which was very, very successful. And it came, that came alongside a book in which they would equip people to go out and, and reach out for people. And so, you have all of these things, and some of these books and some of these models of evangelism, I would argue, have become dated um, because times change, people change, uh, different ideas become popular in our culture. And so, I think that as we live in this culture as Christians, we sometimes have to not change the message, but we might want to reevaluate the way in which we engage people uh, in, in that kind of thing. Um, one of the models of evangelism which has, come, which has become particularly popular is sort of this friendship evangelism model, which uh, when we were working in Europe uh, doing evangelism, we um, helped sort of train some of, the, some of the campus crusade folk staff and others. And this is the model because they found that the four spiritual laws working in Europe is pretty much worthless. When you start off with, well, you know, God's got a wonderful plan for your life that the average European skeptic is going to go, well, which God are you talking about? And first of all, why should I think that God even exists? I mean, that that question just presupposes this is an existence of God, you know? So, um, they've got this friendship evangelism model in which they they go out and they befriend people and then over a period of time, they sort of get that person to come to an event where they then sort of reveal the Christian faith. Now, uh, whilst I get... And I'm not opposed, certainly not opposed to making friends with people. We need to be doing that. I have a couple of problems with that uh, thing. Number one, it's it smacks of a bait and switch. Um, what's a bait and switch? Well, you you know, you put something out there for somebody to take, and then just as they reach for it, you switch it out, and, you, and they grab something else. And I find that this is this can lead to these contrived encounters in evangelism, where it gets to the conversation where the person looks at you and thinks. Sort of like when you're trying to sort of sell, as what I would expect, it's like trying to sell insurance to somebody. You know, when they're not really buying into it. And so we have to be careful in our evangelism that um, we stay on track with what we do as Christians, but then also make sure that in our encounters that our conversations are meaningful with people and people don't feel like we're manipulating them or, or doing this. And here's the other big problem I have with the friendship evangelism model if for the sake of argument you knew that that person would not become a christian okay should you still be their friend and i would contend to you yes now we can never know that because who of us knows the future none of us do but i would argue for the sake of argument that that's one thing about the model that it seems like there's an agenda going on there the reason only reason why you befriended me is not because there's something Intrinsically good about me and worth, and that it would be theologically false because everybody is made in the image of God. Whether they're cantankerous, grumpy, miserable neighbor, you're meant to love them, uh, even if you knew they weren't coming to heaven. I mean, that's the way we f- we befriend all people, not just because we want to get the gospel to them. So I I, I think that some of these models um, are are problematic, and I would also argue that potentially. The reason why some of these models, I think, are failing, or why they are in this position, is because they, they don't understand the nature of Christianity in terms of how it intersects with other ideas. And so what they're doing is they're constructing these forms and these methodologies which I don't think are particularly effective. Um, the same can be said on books of evangelism. There's many good books of evangelism. Uh, Tim Downs wrote, wrote a book called Finding Common Ground. It's a very useful book. Um, there is a, a book by Greg Kokel called Tactics, which basically helps you deal with conversations, like what kind of questions you want to ask. It's a great, very practical tool in helping to help you with conversations. One of the best books on evangelism that I'm aware of is a book by David Geisler, Dr. Norman Geisler's son, called Conversational Evangelism, a very helpful book on that. Uh, Doug Pollock has written a book called God's Space, which is useful, and and so there's these books out there as well. So, but my talk this morning is not to sort of give a survey of models of evangelism or books on evangelism, as interesting as that might be, um, uh, because the book is about evangelism in the New Testament. Um, But if I was to offer two criticisms of methodologies of evangelism or books on evangelism. These are the two things to me which, which seem to be um, uh, most glaring. Number one, be wary of in any metal... Because I encourage you to read some of these books and, and of course, you know, chew the chicken, spit out the bones uh, philosophy. <coughs> See what's good in there and and, and, and make that own it yourself. And then if you think that there's a problem there, then discuss it with your friends and say... I'm not convinced of that. I don't think that that's going to work yet. So, um, but, but there's two things to be wary of. Number one, reductionism. Okay, What is reductionism? Okay. It's a fancy philosophy term just for um, this um, contemporary um, view of just making everything simpler and simpler so we can distill things down to one particular thing and find a silver bullet which kills all things, you know. Look, life is complex, people are complex, and what's worse, sin does bizarre things to people. We all know that, because we've all been on the receiving end of what sin does to us, in which we become irrational, and incoherent, and daft, and we do all sorts of crazy things. So, to think that you can conform that scenario to a particular paradigm, or bullet list, or checklist, in my estimation, is simply naive, okay? Uh, So this kind of reductionist philosophy, well, I can reduce everything to these things, I just think that that is um, constraining you in your evangelistic encounter. So I'm more convinced that the model, uh, uh, for example, that David Geiser sets out, which is much more eclectic, um, is much more productive in our conversations, there, there is no one silver bullet because people are different, their contexts are different, the questions they ask are different. They've been injured in various ways in different capacities. And so you, you can't necessarily put every person onto a specific grid and just you know shake the f- a sieve and it's going to fall through where you want it. That's, that, in my experience, has been the case. And I would also argue, if we study the New Testament, that what we find there is a methodology which I think is more like, like that, which is more like this kind of you evaluate... Your, your context, your audience, your people, and you're not always necessarily forcing those people onto a particular uh, grid, and, we, and we'll see that hopefully. So, the purpose of my talk this morning was to say avoid reductionism, okay, and uh, also any um, evangelistic book or model of evangelism which pays lip service to apologetics, okay, or makes light of apologetics, okay. I would argue, is unbiblical. Okay, That's what I'm going to hope to establish this morning. Because I challenge you, as you look in the Bible, I would challenge you to see if you can try and separate the apologetics from the evangelistic encounters that people have in the Bible. Okay, So I think that we need to make sure we correctly understand the role of apologetics in the life of the believer. And that's what Dr. Little spoke about last night. Okay, What does apologetics do? And what does it not do? Okay? Because it's there in the scriptures, make no mistake. But we need to understand what the purpose is and, and why is it important. So a good way to sort of wrap your head around that is I always see the I see apologetics as the handmaiden to evangelism. Okay, so what does a handmaiden do? A handmaiden helps another. Okay. Uh, apologetics helps the evangelist. You don't always need to uh, do apologetics, because sometimes maybe a person isn't asking a critical question. Maybe they just need for you to share your testimony and give them the gospel. But you have to be ready, because sometimes you're not going to get that liberty. Sometimes maybe they just want to you hear your testimony, and they say, well, I've got a question. That's interesting, but I've got a question. Or sometimes you meet somebody who's a real skeptic, and they they're not even interested in your testimony. They're just going to say, well, that's just true for you kind of thing. What's true for you is true for you, what's true for me, that's, what, that's the mantra of our age. So they're not even interested in what your testimony is. Maybe your testimony isn't going to have an impact on them. That's when we need to start believing that truth can impact people. Because let's say, for example, these people don't care anything for our testimony. And you meet people like that. Well, if this is true, then it, re- it doesn't really matter what my testimony is or isn't. If this is true, then they're going to have to weigh that. Regardless of whether Jesus changed my life or not, if Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, which history demonstrates to us, then we've got to we've got to reconcile that. If God exists, then you have to think about the implications of that. Regardless of whether my life has been changed by Christ or not, so this is what i this is what I'm I'm getting at here. Okay, so um, sometimes I suspect. Like a lot of things, we're often in a rush to get to books about the Bible than necessarily just starting with the Bible. You see, this is, a, this is one of the vices of uh, contemporary Protestantism. We've spilled oceans of ink writing books about the Bible, which then surfaces a distraction from the, from the books. And, and like, look, let's read the book that inspired all those books. Because we can. It's not like this thing is hidden in a vault. We all have it here. We just want to read what other books I We want to read the book. And I think sometimes in evangelism, before we read about other books on evangelism, why don't we start with looking in the Bible and see what kind of evangelism is going on there and what what examples do we have of it. And perhaps we can learn something from these encounters that might be appropriate for our times in which we live. And maybe we can get some gems out of here and then make that a part of our witness. Okay, so we're going to... Um, this is important because... Um, uh, we, uh, we need to really um, move away from this notion that um, people say things like, uh, well, you know, we need to preach Christ and if necessary, use words. Okay, who's heard that statement? Oh gosh, where do I start with that comment? Okay, now that sounds so pious, Okay. Yes, I know what you're getting at there. There is a biblical injunction even given to wives that if you have an unbelieving husband that you should live in a particular way such that maybe your unbelieving husband might be provoked. So there's a precedent for living a Christian life because sometimes our actions do speak louder than words. But people use these kinds of slogans as an excuse, in my opinion, to not talk about the faith or to actually even attempt to answer the question. And so people will say these things like that. You know, another very famous thing that people will say, very well known, is people will say things like, well, um, uh, there is no need for you to defend a lion when he is being attacked. All you need to do is open the gate and let him out. Okay, People saying this about, for example, this is this anti-apologetic attitude. This comes from none other than Charles Spurgeon. Now, whilst Charles Spurgeon is one of the most wonderful preachers that. I certainly know he's flat wrong, Charles. You're wrong here. The Bible doesn't say you just preach the gospel. The Bible tells you you defend the gospel. It's not like a lion that just needs to be let out there and it runs around chomping everything. The Bible itself. So these are some of the things you need to be wary of. Whilst people say these kinds of things and they sound pious, it's pious nonsense. Not because Simon braces so, but I think as we look into the Bible now we see the context for that, okay? We'll look at some specific verses here. Okay. Alright, so where, where should we start then? If you have your Bibles, we're going to go to the book of Acts. Now let me ask you a question why would we go to the book of Acts? Any idea why, why we might go there? Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Which other book did Luke write? Luke. Okay. So, um, let me ask you a question then. Um, is the nature and purpose of the book of Luke the same as that of Acts? I would argue so. What, what is the nature and the pur- purpose of the book of Luke? Well, Luke tells us sure. that if you go to the, the Gospel of Luke. In the first few verses. Let's go and read there. This we just keep your finger in, in the book of Acts that so we're going to get there now. But we actually find out here in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke um, why Luke chose to write this book. Okay? So I've always understood it to be that really this is one book, two volumes. Luke Acts is really one book, two volumes. Okay? So in some sense, the Gospel of John being squashed between these two books is somewhat frustrating there because. A natural reading of Luke would be to read Luke through to its end and then just continue into the book of Acts. Okay? That would be the natural transition there. So here we have in the first four verses, first four verses uh, Luke talking about the reason and the purpose of the very letter he's writing, the Gospel of Luke. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Okay, isn't that awesome? What does he tell you? He tells you the reason for why he's going to write this. What has he done? So, So that he can give you an orderly account, as some of your texts say, of the things that happened, what are the things that he's researching here is the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And in, La- in, in Luke and in, in the book of Acts he goes on to, to talk about the early church. Okay? Why does he do it? So that you may know the certainty of these things. Okay. So what do we have here? We have a historian at work. We know that Luke was a physician. So in the same way that Josephus, in my opinion, Josephus is a historian unto the Jews, and he wrote you know, a very famous book around the time of the New Testament, uh, the Jewish Wars. He was a Jewish historian. In the same way that Josephus is a Jew unto the Jews, I think that Luke is a historian unto the Christians. And he's very clear. And if you read these, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, you'll see that on many occasions we find all of these very significant historical markers, okay, which point to specific places and times and people. We've already seen here that whom is he consulting? He's consulting eyewitnesses. Okay. Now if you look at the, uh, the book, of Acts, uh, book of Acts, you see that this comes up all the time. Eyewitness account. And we're going to look at some of that as we move on. So this is very significant. So in the same way that Herodotus and Thucydides and these guys were historians to the Greeks and the Romans... And um, Josephus was a Jew uh, historian unto the Jews. I think that Luke is our Christian historian of the New Testament. Okay, and uh, so let's just take one one little verse here, just to show you how significant this is. Go to Luke chapter three. Okay, and this is the kind of thing that will grab the attention of historians because in Luke chapter three we see uh, Luke saying this he says now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip of Tetrarch was in the region of Arteria, and Trachonitis and Lysanias was Tetrarch of Abilene in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas the word of God came to John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness now why might that be important because he's mentioning what dates and a whole bunch of people now, if these people never existed, then the Bible is false, folks. That's the claim yeah. So these are the kinds of things which when you've probably read this book, you think, well, this doesn't sound very spiritual at all. Who are these cats and what difference does it make? It matters historically because these are the kinds of things that we can say, well, did these people exist? And what does archaeology and independent sources tell us? That these people really existed. We found, to the best of my knowledge, I think they've found everybody historically. Independent of any kind of biblical claim on these individuals. Which is terrific. In fact, in Josephus' own writings, he talks about some of the people in the New Testament, including uh, John the Baptist and James, the brother of Jesus. He talks about him being killed by in the, in, in, in the 60s, in the first century. This is wonderful corroborative evidence, and it also substantiates and, and, and asks challenges with the question, is Luke a good historian? Okay. Now that's important for us because as we flip over into the book of Acts, I want you to turn to Acts chapter seventeen. Okay. So we know now that that that, that what the purpose of the book of Luke and Acts is, and, and what we've got going on here, and uh, this is this is very significant. Okay. So let's go to Acts uh, chapter seventeen. Um, we're going to start in the first three verses there. Okay. I'm going to read it at Paul in Thessalonica. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, by the way, I've probably butchered the pronunciation of these towns, um, so I'll do my best in that front. They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead and saying that this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Jesus is Messiah. Okay. That's cool. He does this for three weeks. Okay. Three weeks. Three Sabbath days. He goes in there for a period of three weeks. And he's... Now, if you back up in the book of Acts and you follow on from here, every time he seems to go to a place, where's the first place he often goes to? He goes to the synagogues. And what does he do? He does exactly what he does. Yeah. He goes in there and he reasons with the Jews from the Scriptures, proving to them that Jesus is the Christ. Okay. How does he go about doing this? Where does his arguments for Jesus being the Christ come from? From the Old Testament. Now, why would Jesus argue with the Jews from the Old Testament? Why would he use that as a basis? Exactly. Okay, so we can ask ourselves a question. Why, why would he argue from the Old Testament? He does so because the Old Testament served as some kind of authority in the lives of the Jews. Okay, um, the Jews took it to be an authority, so he could use it as common ground from which to argue. Now, what I found particularly frustrating in the in the in these accounts of Paul reasoning in the synagogues is often we're we're not told what the nature of the arguments were, which has been a superior f- source of frustration to me, because I would love for them to have like given us. or couldn't they have given us like maybe a chapter on like. Paul and how he... What what, what arguments did he think? What was he... And that... It was a point of frustration to me. I'm like, gosh, that would have been really useful to have had that in the Bible. And then it dawned on me as I was studying the book of Romans, which is also written by Paul, that when Paul writes Romans, he does something which to begin with is awfully frustrating, okay? As he's laying out the book of Romans and he's giving you all of his doctrine on... on, uh, Basically, that's a, a book that's thick with doctrine and lays out the gospel. You know, what man, man's problem is, you know, and first of all, the existence of God. Then man's problem. Man's problem is that he's a sinner and everybody's sinners. And so in order to be reconciled with God, man needs righteousness. Well, since no man is righteous, where can he find righteousness? And then he introduces Christ, the work of Christ. Then he gives the example of Abraham chapter 4 is the example of how does okay so if Christ has the righteousness we need how to obtain it through faith and so Abraham is given as the paradigm of, the champion of faith and, and then it go goes on to expand on that once you understand justification he moves into the issue of sanctification how do we live and then assurance of salvation in Romans chapter 8 and then Romans 9, 10 and 11 Paul takes a hiatus and he, he deals with the, with the Jewish question you know, what about us if, if, if God uh, cannot forsake us um, what about us Jews? Are we not the elect people of God? That's the question that Paul begins to address in Romans chapter 9 and he finishes off at the end of Romans chapter 11. And then in Romans chapter 12, there's a big therefore. The therefore is usually about to come a conclusion. So in think in verse 12, we find from 12 through the end of the book of, uh, of Romans, we have application. And he talks about what? He talks about the transformation of your mind. Present yourself as vessels for his service and allow the transformation of your mind to happen and then he goes and and explains it. So it's awesome. But what's really interesting is you follow the arguments in the book of Romans, Paul will be talking about this stuff and then he just sort of interrupts himself and he just takes a tangent and goes and addresses some Jewish objection which is frustrating to me because it's like if I was just talking to you about, I don't know, fishing on the coast of North Carolina and then I just started rambling on about World Cup rugby and I go, hang on, we thought we were talking about Fishing on the coast. What, are you talking about rugby now? So it seems like he's doing this. But but when you understand the audience to whom Paul is speaking, he's speaking to a Jewish audience and a Gentile audience. And he knows because of the context of the Old Testament that when he says certain things about Jesus, that the question that's going to arise in the mind of the Gentile is not going to be the same question that's going to arise in the mind of the Jew. And so before the Jewish mind can get out there and stop, he cuts it off. He anticipates the objection and he goes and he cuts it off so he can keep things back on track because he wants the Jewish audience to keep track with the argument. And he knows that, like all of us, if you sit down and you're listening to somebody and somebody says something and you think, well, I'm not so sure about that. Often what will your mind tend to do? It's going to start tracking with where your objection is before you're not, you're not paying attention to the speaker anymore. So the speaker anticipates that. He says, no, I'm not going to let your mind get away with that because I know what you're thinking. And so here's a... And so he does this. And so once you see that cadence, it starts to make it. And then it dawned on me, maybe some of the arguments that Paul is making in the book of Romans were some of the arguments that perhaps he was making in the synagogues. Now it's speculative, but I think it's reasonable to think that maybe some of the arguments we see Paul making in Romans might have been, and that, that attended to my frustration. I thought, well, maybe I need to go study Acts then, or Romans, and maybe... There I can find, and other places in the epistles, for example, where Paul might be making these arguments. So we see Paul doing this in Acts chapter 17 with the Jews, and in and, and many other places. <clears throat> We're moving on in Acts chapter 17. Let's pick it up in verse um, 16. <clears throat> now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day to see with those who happened to be present. And so and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what is this idle babbler wishing to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they brought him... And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visited there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said to him, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Okay. Now, we're not going to have time to, to delve into this chapter, because it's, it's just so awesome to study this. And Here we have Paul doing evangelism. Okay. This is a clear example of it. We've already seen him in the synagogues, preaching that Jesus is Messiah. This is evangelism, folks. We've already seen that he's reasoning with them from the Scriptures. Okay? Reasoning with people, not just sharing your testimony. Okay, contending for the faith, as Paul says in so many other places. I was put here for the defense of the faith. Okay, here he's bumping into a different group of people. He's been engaging Jews, but he's, now he's engaging these Gentiles and he's engaging some philosophers. So, a good question: We do what are these philosophers? A good, a good thing to do: Just study what what did this, the the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers believe in and how would he be engaging it? Now, I've, I've been fortunate enough to go to Athens, and I've been to the Areopagus, okay, which is a rather insignificant little crop of rocks down from the main temple. I thought I was going to have this really religious experience and meet Jesus on the hill, and he wasn't there. It was just not a particularly spiritual place because it was filthy, and there were cigarette butts all over the place. So um, I, I, I was rather jaded. It. But what I did experience is I was standing on those rocks when you read Paul's address there, so he said he stood in the merits of the area of he says, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. When you stand there to this day and you look around you, everywhere you look, you can see, even to this day, temples. These huge temples. Now, in, in Paul's day, there would have been much more grander and in better condition than they are now 2,000 two that they're standing off after 2,000 years as testimony to that architecture I mean but you know even in a modern city they tend to get swallowed up these ancient sites but can you imagine and Paul's day so how he opens here is most appropriate he says look I can see you are a religious people he's got common ground with them notice what he's not doing here he's not reading quoting Old Testament passages to these people he isn't saying, well, on Deuteronomy, he isn't giving the argument. Why? Because that would have been nonsense to these people. It was strange enough just talking to them about the death and resurrection of Jesus, let alone giving them passages out of Leviticus. I mean, that would have just been even more. But it doesn't, it doesn't hamper his efforts to preach the gospel to these people. So you find so here we find a methodology of um, evangelism coming out. He sort of anticipates what he, his, his audience is and he's going to engage them, okay? Now, there's, and we're not going to have time to unpack all of this, but there's a couple of things I'd like to point out to you. If you read a little bit on as he gets into his discourse here... <clears throat> Pick it up in verse um, 26. He says, And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, For we are also His children. Okay, so, when I was in South Africa recently, I was driving down from the airport to this venue and there was this huge big billboard which had this obvious Christian message on it. Okay? And it said something to the effect in Afrikaans. It said, The Babel Aliyah. Okay? Which in translated means the Bible alone. Okay? Now, Whilst that sounds very pious, once again, it's pious nonsense. Okay? It's not the Bible alone. That's not what we have at our disposal to engage people. We have the word of God, but all of creation is God's as well. Nobody has He's the one who's got the patent on that. It doesn't belong to somebody else. So Paul is leveraging. Not only creation here. We see this in Romans chapter 1. He talks about us knowing God from creation. He's leveraging scriptures when it's appropriate. But here he's referencing what? Their own poets. Which presupposes what? That he was familiar with their poets. Paul was not only trained under the Gamaliel, these Jewish leaders. It seems to suggest that he was familiar with the pagans and their writings. And he uses this as a platform in the same way that Thomas in there earlier on was saying, Look, I don't give any kind of authority to the Quran. Okay? In the same way that I give authority to the Bible in terms of what I think of it. But where the Quran is consistent with what the Bible teaches about Jesus, in which on a number of instances it is, I will point that out to the Muslims. Because yes, Jesus is called a Messiah. The question is, what is Messiah? To which the Muslims have no answer. Because that's a Jewish concept. So we have to go to the Jews to ask them what Messiah is. And that's when the, in- the conversation with Muslims becomes very interesting. Okay? They, je- they believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. Well, do we believe that? Sure. Well, let's talk about it. Well, why is he born of a virgin? Why isn't Muhammad born of a virgin? Why is Jesus the only prophet? Who's born of a virgin? Who says the things he says? Who makes the claims, of the things that he does? Who doesn't fall on his face in front of God? Like other prophets, like Isaiah, and say, I am worthy. Uh, who am I? I want to get consumed. Swallow me up because I'm, I'm, I'm a man who's. That's interesting. Hey, these are great questions. And so Paul, Paul here is marvelous because he's, he's quoting the, the, the pagans. Okay? So, like I said to you earlier on, be wary of people saying things that sound pious. Give it some thought, because some pious stuff is just pious nonsense. Okay. In our age and culture we're seeing a swell and a proliferation of New Age thinking. Okay, you see this with people like Oprah Winfrey, for example, and Deepak Chopra and all these other, you know, New Agey Eastern religious religious ideas and concepts and paganism. Now, none of these ideas are new. There's nothing new under, under the sun. These ideas are as old as paganism has been around. They've just got a different uh, tablecloth on them. But if you pull the tablecloth off, straight, it's the same structure. Okay. But when we start to engage pagans, I'm not suggesting that everybody needs to be doing this, but somebody ought to be reading what the pagans are writing for the sake of being able to communicate to these people who are caught up in this kind of stuff. Okay? And I've actually had, I've been very fortunate in that I've actually been in instances where I've actually been able to actually engage people uh, in this example. I'll give you an example. I was in Barnes & Noble one day. I was doing a study on the occult. Uh, Dr. Howe was teaching it and we were doing a particular study on Satanism. And so I was actually having to read the Satanic Bible at seminary, to which a lot of people are going to go, (gasps) look, folks, we need to read it, okay? It doesn't mean I approve of it or I think there's any value to it necessarily, but I need to read it for the sake of understanding what it is that these people find interesting. Now here's the reality of Satanism. It's rather disappointing. I thought it would be this really cool thing. Most of the Satanic Bible was plagiarized from a guy by the name of Ragnar Redbeard. Isn't that sad? I'm like, I was expecting this really dangerous, edgy... I had a Hollywood view of Satanism. The guy who founded Satanism is Anton LaVey. He never professed to worship any kind of Satanic creature. He's very explicit in saying, I did this so I could make money off of stupid rich people in California. (laughs) Okay, so when you study the reality of this, it's it's interesting and it's liberating because I'm like, yeah, I've had a false idea, I've had Hollywood's view of Satanism. So I'm at I'm at Barnes and Noble, and some kids walk into me. I couldn't believe this. I've got my I've got my file in front of me like I have here now, and I'm reading the Satanic Bible. And this guy comes sitting next to me, and he's got a whole bunch of little kids around him, and he's talking about what the Satanic Bible. I'm like, you've got to be joking, Lord. You set me up here so big time. So I'm, I'm, I'm listening on his conversation, and all of these little kids are enamored by this guy because he's so edgy and dangerous, and he's dressed with all of those dark clo- clothes, and they've got the makeup on, and sort of this gothic style. And I just couldn't resist this because I wanted to just prick a hole in his balloon and deflate any kind of authorities. So said, look. I tapped him on the shoulder. I said, look, I couldn't help but over-listening To your conversation here, I hear you're talking about the Satanic Bible. Of course, the look on his face was like, what? Because he had all of these kids under his spell. So I said to him, "So, So tell me, what do you think of Anton LaVey? He said, Who's Anton LaVey? He said, He's the guy who wrote the Satanic Bible. Suddenly, his authority seemed to vaporize. And then I said, I said, you know, I'm actually reading this. And I, I said, I'm actually reading the satanic Bible. Said, you know, most of it was plagiarized. Isn't that so disappointing? Yeah, listen, listen, listen to this. And I started reading it to them. So when people say things like the Bible alone, folks, wherever that comes from, that's not a biblical concept. Okay? Yes, the Bible is intrinsically, extremely valuable to us. But here we have an example of Paul doing what? Showing us that he was familiar. So I'm not suggesting that we should take people out there to read some of the occultic material. Because it's dangerous. It's very explicit. Okay? But we need to have some people within our ranks that are familiar with this material. For the sake of reaching those who are caught up in some of these ideas. Because they are destroying people and so at least some of us must be doing it or we should be encouraging people to do it who do it well we actually have a woman who's a graduate of our school I'd like to get her to come down and do a conference she is an expert on wicker and, and, and reaching people, young girls caught up in witchcraft and this kind of thing she was a former professional astrologer this is what she does okay. moving on so we see here from these examples that Paul is engaging these people and he's using apologetics here he's giving them arguments He's using philosophical kinds of arguments yet to engage these pagans. okay? And I would argue to you, try and separate his evangelism from his apologetics. I can't see him doing that. These two things, it's like one rope with, with two, they come together. These things come together. We go on to the uh, Acts chapter 18. We see Paul, uh, after these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth and he found, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Picking it up further on, uh, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working for by trade. They were tent makers, and he was reasoning in the synagogue with every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Here he's doing he's doing it again, and you'll see this on many more occasions. It's five minutes later on here in Acts chapter uh, eighteen. We, we're introduced to another chapter, um, verse twenty-four. Now it's not just Paul, we introduced to another guy, Apollos. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public debate, and some of you just say debate, in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So it's not just Paul doing it, it's Apollos doing it. Now what's, very, what's often missed in this is verse 27 there. He greatly helped those who believe through grace. Your, verse, your, your translations might say something. He was an encouragement to them. Folks, the reasons why I do apologetics, not just so that we can answer the Mormon or the Jehovah's Witness, is because this serves as, a, as encouragement to us. Why? Because Paul says this in Titus 1 9. We should encourage people through what? Sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? True ideas. So apologetics is there for your benefit. It helps to strengthen your faith. It helps for you to understand that what you believe is really true. That gives you greater confidence when you go out in witnessing. So apologetics also is for the benefit of the individual studying it. So if that's one reason alone to study apologetics, well then plunge in. Hopefully you'll move beyond sort of helping yourself to then helping others understand what is true. So yeah, we have another person doing this. Now I want you to go to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter twenty six, we find Paul as towards the end of his work. He is this is my favourite instance of evangelism in the, in the in 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 the Bible. Um, go to Acts chapter twenty six. Paul is on. He went back to Rome and he was causing a ruckus there. And the Jews tried to kill him, and the Romans had to prevent civil chaos, so they arrested him and put him in jail. And he doesn't have a lawyer; he has to give a defence for himself. And if you read verse 26, he goes out, he's like a lawyer, he's having to give his defense. But we're going to pick it up in verse 22. So having obtained help from God, and this is towards the end of his defense, I stand to the state testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. That the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection... From the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Interesting. By reason of his resurrection. Think about that. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. What I utter... But I utter words of sober sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, In such a short time, will you persuade me to become a Christian? This This is an example of evangelism, folks. Paul is not so much interested about his defense. What is he trying to do? He's trying to share the gospel with these guys. And he finds common ground because he knows that Agrippa, as, as, as unreligious as he was, that he had some kind of view of the Old Testament. But then what's very important in this passage is what he says in verse 23 because he says there, sorry, verse 26, he says to him, Since I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for it was not done in a corner. What I am saying is true and reasonable is what Paul says in here. Because the things of which I speak, and he's speaking about the death and resurrection of Jesus, were not done in a the corner. These are historic events, folks. This is historical apologetics. If you want to read about the death and resurrection of Jesus, read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which talks all about the importance of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It talks about what? 500 eyewitnesses. And more. And Paul says, if Jesus never rose raised from the dead, then our faith is futile. And in this context, in this time, these people had the opportunity to investigate these events. Because they weren't hidden in a the corner. They were public events, folks. This is historical apologetics that Paul is doing here. In evangelism. That's why I said to you, whenever you evaluate evangelistic models or books, when they pay lip service to, to, to apologetics, there's a problem with that. Because I would argue it's unbiblical. We have to understand the role of apologetics in the, in, in the purpose of evangelism and how these things come together. And I think that we've seen, and there are many other examples. We can study Jesus' encounter with the religious authorities and how he go about, how, he, how does he go about answering them and their questions and that kind of thing. And you can look at many other places here, but I've just selected a few passages out of the New Testament for us to evaluate in terms of, look, if we're going to do evangelism, Okay, maybe we can take a leaf out of the Bible, so to say see that the early church was people who were familiar with the age and the times in which they lived. That they understood that the sermon I'm going to preach tomorrow morning is, is dealing with uh, Paul's view of how the gospel should, should be preached in, in Corinthians. It's fascinating. And lots of what he does in 1 Corinthians corresponds with what he's saying elsewhere and in numerous other passages. And so here we have it then, folks. It's my thesis this morning, is that as we consider evangelism in the New Testament... As you think about going out to reach other people, go and read these passages, study the book of Acts, and with that in mind, try and pay attention as you're reading through it and, and Luke, pay attention to the manner and the, and, the, and the methodology which they go about addressing folks. And then think, okay, how could I perhaps incorporate some of those lessons, some of those examples into the way that I engage people? And so just in short, to distill these things, I would, I would argue to you that the methodology we find here in the, in, the, in the New Testament is not what you sometimes find on contemporary shelves in our churches. I don't know, but I can't find the four spiritual laws here, folks. Paul doesn't say God's got a wonderful plan for your life. He says these things are true and reasonable because they weren't done in a corner. Because we know from Paul's life that what? Sometimes his life wasn't really wonderful. That is if you like being flogged and beaten to death and that kind of thing. So of course when we say that to people, what do you mean to that? And what does this mean to people who are are Christian brothers and sisters who are living in in places where they've been persecuted? Is that wonderful? What do you mean by that? So I would submit to you that some people have been hasty and just guilty of reductionism and just trying to distill this simplistic methodology. And I'm like, well, that's fine, but... I'm not convinced. I find that this model that we find here in, is even most appropriate for our times. I sort not suggest that God hasn't used these other methodologies. He's used Billy Graham and Bill Bright. He's used this with great effect. But the age and the culture in which we live now, I think, is more like what Paul found because people are sitting around talking about the latest ideas and they're all asking the same question that Pilate asked Jesus. What is truth? And we have to know how to articulate that And talk about that. And we need to understand the ideas that grip the culture better than the pagans understand those ideas themselves. Okay. And I'm over time now. But I'm done now. Thank you very much. If you've got any questions, you can come and chat to me afterwards. Okay.